0: Please be seated. So here we are, we've already made it to Lent. Can you believe it? The whole point of the liturgical calendar, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, the season after Pentecost, of course, is to invite us, to draw us into a story, right? The story of Jesus is to find ourselves somehow our story being caught up into Jesus's story. So here we are in Lent, the very beginning of our um, time of preparing, right, for kind of the, the high point of the story. The resurrection will come later in Easter. And we're reminded of what had to come before. And so we actually go all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story here. All the way back to Eve and Adam. Because their story can only end up with Jesus. So we begin. There's nothing except God. And God because there's nothing except him and he's everywhere even though there's no place yet opens space within himself and he creates suns moons water earth and life and he speaks and everything emerges from nothing and taking the dust that fell from the stars to the earth god then does something different now instead of speaking god personally and carefully and tenderly and lovingly shapes human being and then even more intimately He breathes into this artistic masterpiece. And Adam is brought to life as the living image of God, along with his wife, Eve. And of course, like everything and everyone God makes, they are good. And like everything and everyone that God makes, they are loved. And they enjoy this kind of fellowship where they can know and be known by one another with and, and, and by God without any shame. They're naked, but it doesn't matter because there's nothing to hide, nothing to fear. There's only perfect community and harmony between Adam and Eve and their God. They tend to to the garden, they tend to each other, they tend to the presence of God, and they eat freely from every tree, including the tree of life, which is the way God gives them the gift of eternal life. By partaking of the fruit of this particular tree, they are enacting their trust in God. And so they receive his infinite life, then into their finite bodies this is how things were meant to be. And yet, it's an interesting part of this story, isn't there? That God plants another tree. A tree with terrible potential right in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden. And from the beginning, there's life and life abundant. Freely given, and yet alongside it, a poison. Why would God do that? Why would God even allow such a thing to take root deep in the soil of paradise? I think it's because there's something about the nature of the love between us and God that requires it to be voluntary that requires it to be chosen, not coerced. There is something about the nature of love itself that requires the possibility of choosing not to love. See, God made his irrevocable choice to love in the very act of creation. That was his choice. Yet he also desired Adam and Eve to choose him. God's not content with the kind of love that is not the true and free gift of one's whole self to the other. Clearly the first humans must have understood the basics of good and evil, at least abstractly, right? Because they have this command to obey God, to trust him. And they knew that to disobey would be going against their very source of life. So I don't think that this tree of knowledge of good and evil was a source of abstract facts of what is right and what is wrong. Don't do this, do do this kind of thing. Rather, I think that to choose that forbidden fruit would provide the kind of deep understanding that Adam and Eve couldn't yet imagine. That is to say, it would provide experiential knowledge of choosing evil over good. You and I have all made bad choices. Like We know what that feels like. We know what that is. You and I have all gone through the trauma of loss, of abuse, of disappointment. Of disrupted and dysfunctional relationships of disaster. And none of us want our children, our friends, our loved ones to know those experiences, right? We pray that they will be spared from knowing evil in that way. And so it is with God. It's not that he was trying to keep his, his sons and his daughters in ignorance. It's that He he never wanted them to know what it would be like to deliberately choose not to trust him. Because withholding trust is the withholding of oneself, is it not? It is is an erosion of love. And because God is love and life, to, to erode one's love for God by withholding trust from him is to erode at one's very life. God knows this. And so he warns his precious children, that's what that's about but unfortunately through a series of deceptive half truths a crafty serpent plants seeds of distrust in the minds of eve and adam the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened. that's the true part and you will be like god that's the half truth part knowing good and evil this was the worst of the serpent's deception. The idea that God would and could lie. And that he was somehow trying to keep them in the dark. And that he didn't want them to be like him. They were already like him. They were already living in and out of love. Which is exactly what it means to be like God. So Adam and Eve make their choice. They pluck the fruit from the gnarled Branches. They take a bite, and then they know, yes, their eyes are opened. The realization comes suddenly. The eyes of both were opened. And what happens next? They make loincloths for themselves. Not because there's something, listen, not because there's something inherently dirty about any human body part, okay? Um, Not because there's something inherently wrong with sexuality. Or because nudity in itself is somehow a problem. That's not what's going on here. But it's because the intuitive realize now that because they have chosen not to trust God and he's the source of everybody's life, they can't quite trust each other now either. And the irony is that in eating from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, their ability to know and be known by one another is now compromised. They have to hide their most vulnerable parts from each other. And so Adam and Eve feel shame. Not because they have genitalia and all of a sudden they're aware of it. But because they know that the consequence of their actions will now affect every life that comes from their union. They know they are making history and not in the good way. And so they're full of shame. They've now deliberately chosen to trust something else instead of God. They've begun to withhold, they've begun to withhold themselves from God and from his love. And so his life, and that's just the crack that was needed for death to enter the world. And so death doesn't come immediately, but it does come. And so you and I, as members of this same human family, remain affected by Adam and Eve's decision to compromise their love for God and for each other. Our story is caught up in their story. And I don't don't understand exactly how the Bible doesn't tell us, but it seems that something was broken in their nature in that moment of their rebellion. As soon as that kind of crack appeared in that loving relationship that it it just widened until there was this, this fracture that can't be recovered from. And so there's something broken in our nature too because we share that same human nature. Just like every human being since Eve and Adam, we are born now on a trajectory toward death. And like it or not, humans are somehow all tied together. right? Our attitudes, actions, and affections, positive and negative, they don't just impact us. But those around us and those that come after us, we know this as parents, as children, as members of of any kind of society of people that live together, what one person does affects The whole every time and in this case human nature was damaged and the image of God in us, that way of living in and from love was broken and whatever the dark power was behind that crafty serpent and the resulting brokenness of our fundamentally good human nature whatever that dark power is, that is what we call sin and we've all been sucked into its tragic and deadly vortex. We all suffer, don't we, from some kind of shame and distrust, some kind of hesitation in knowing and being known by others. We all fail in living in such a way as to fully display the love of God, and so we have trouble knowing and loving God. We experience this as alienation from one another. We experience this as conflict with each other. This is why there are things like divorce, This is why there are things like war. This is why we mistreat our children. This is why the poor remain oppressed, even in this, the richest nation on earth. This is why we are not on speaking terms with our mothers and brothers and best friends. This is why we are afraid of others that think and act and speak and look differently than we do. Each of us is born into a world that was touched by the fundamental distrust of Adam. And we just can't escape it. We can't escape sin. The, where, the world that we live in is a world in which we are all effectively condemned to a way of being that leads to death. It doesn't take much time living before all of us becomes then not just condemned, not just born into this situation, but but actually becomes guilty of something. Of course, we're not all guilty of the same things, okay? And truly, look, I get it. Some sins are worse than others in terms of their consequences in this life. Nevertheless, every single person in this room and out of it, shares that same broken human nature that is no longer drawing life from the love of God and because of that we've all done something we all need forgiveness we all have a crack in our nature that needs to be repaired and in this way each of us no matter how quote good or or bad we are or think we are we're slaves to sin That is to say, we no longer have the capability in ourselves to live according to our true destiny as human beings, which is to express fully the image of God by living in holy, loving relationships with Him and with other people. So, uh, hear me really clearly here. It's not that every human is pure evil. It's that no human is purely good. We're all quite fatally evil flawed. One of my favorite theologians, a Baptist, believe it or not, Stanley Grenz, said this, our failure to reflect the community of God is a radical problem, for it infects even the core of our being. Only the radical activity of God can overcome our alienation, our condemnation, enslavement, and depravity. I wish I knew why God didn't just fix humanity way back then. Way back then and there with Adam and Eve. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it does say that God promised to fix it one day. Just a little bit later, Genesis chapter 3. God, in kind of handing out the consequences for this sin... And, and letting them know what's going to happen now. He actually curses the serpent, the representative of those dark powers of sin and death. And he says, This I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And that, that means we're going to fight death. We're, we're not just going to, we know there's something wrong with it, we know we're not supposed to die. There's going to be enmity there. And somehow this offspring of the woman shall bruise your head, he says, speaking to the serpent. Crush the head of the serpent and you shall bruise his heel. That's a whole sermon. Somehow the one to crush the power of sin, though, would be a descendant of Eve, a human being. But if if human nature was and is broken, as I've described, how could this happen? No one would know for thousands of years. But God kept speaking to his people. God kept speaking through Abraham, Moses, through the prophets. He gave his people the law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, which we read together. Uh, he, He did this to help them begin to understand what the way of life should be like. But no one was ever able to really live that out in its fullness, right? As as good as the law was and is, it primarily functioned to remind us that something is wrong in us. And when we found it impossible to keep perfectly that that person still hadn't come yet. Nevertheless, the biblical writers held out hope that a Messiah, a Savior of the world, would come. As Christians, we believe that person would was and is Jesus of Nazareth. And that this isn't just a mythical story, but this is a true story. That he was and is a human being, just like me and you, but without sin. And he's without sin, because not only is he human, but in this great mystery, he is, in fact, God himself come to us In the flesh. We call that the incarnation. So in Paul's letter to the Galatians. He writes this about Jesus. God sent him to buy freedom for us. Who were slaves to the law. So that he could adopt us. As his very own children. How did he buy our freedom. From the power of sin. And death. Well he lived this perfect human life. Jesus lived life completely in love with his heavenly father, completely loving towards all people. And in a mysterious way, we can't completely understand. This perfect love is what allowed him to take on the powers of evil behind that human brokenness that sentenced us all to death. And so Jesus went to battle against evil on our behalf as our representative, our champion, he went to battle against evil with the only effective weapon that exists, which is love itself, by loving all, even to the point of death, even loving and forgiving those that crucified him. That's the kind of love that defeats Evil. That kind of perfect love that loves even to the complete giving of oneself unto death. Unintuitively, right? We don't expect this because we think, oh, well, then you're dead, right? But no, this kind of perfect love had and has the power to actually undo death. And so even though Jesus experienced physical death... His love was so full of life that it overcame death. And so after three days in the grave, he was resurrected from the dead, never to die again. This is not just a myth. This is not just a happy story. This is a real, true story. This happened in history. And not only did he deal then with death, but he brought a new kind of life. And believe it or not, it's an even better life than that in the garden. It's a resurrection life. And he brings us to the whole world. So, yes, most of us will still endure physical death. But when we believe in Jesus, right, which is a way of saying we trust in him. When we open ourselves to, to, to loving God, again, we trust in his work. Instead of trusting crafty self-deceptions, we find ourselves once again trusting in God and being restored to a loving relationship with Him. And so it's just a matter of trust. If we'll simply trust Him, we'll receive that kind of internal life that transforms how we live in the present and assures us that we too will share in the resurrection one day. This is called being born again. Into the family of God. And so Paul continues that letter that I quoted earlier to those that have been born again who have trusted and they've received this internal life and they're waiting for it to manifest physically. Because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. That's how we get that life. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. That's like, that's like saying, Dad. It's just a familial term with God. Now we're restored in relationship. And now you're no longer a slave, Paul says, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Jesus is the Son of God. We get connected to Jesus. We get everything Jesus gets, including that resurrection body. Just like Jesus, we may die physically, but we're going to get pulled out of that with a new body and a new life. And that means even in the present, this new, healed, and whole humanity of Jesus begins to be manifest in us, in you and me. And so we come to Jesus, we we come to God for life. In the same way that the first humans ate from the tree of life to receive immortality, we come to the table. Of the Lord to receive the life of Christ. His redeemed human nature as a gift. So we say we, we, we feed on him in our hearts by faith. With thanksgiving. And as we receive his, his body and blood and the bread and in the wine. We are given grace to love again. Grace to love God. Grace to love people. Grace to experience the restoration of community. Grace to receive forgiveness as we forgive others. Grace to be free in a way that is full of life and full of abundant, uh, abundant life. Right? Not just a little bit of life, but abundant life. And, and we get this this grace to receive forgiveness even as we forgive others. And grace to be free in this way that is that is full of healing from pain and destruction and sin, and a lot of it that, that we brought on ourselves free to be known and know once again so we're given this grace of knowing this assurance of knowing when we come to Jesus because we can trust him, we can't trust ourselves we can trust him we get this grace of knowing that it's his life that's going to pull us through death and into the resurrection, yes our story is bound up with Adam and Eve's, we can't help it they were the first humans, we're human beings we're connected, there's nothing we can do about it but our story is also then bound up in the story of Jesus, the new human, the new Adam that instead of ruining the world, redeems and renews the world. The new Adam that buys back for us everything that was lost. I love how St. Paul put this in his letter to the Romans. I'm going to read. Sarah already read it for us beautifully. I'm going to read it again now in the New Living Translation. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, listen, as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, if sin was this infectious disease, this dark power that's made its way through this crack, Jesus is the healing antidote. Do you guys get it? This is good news. God loves you and he wants you to experience true and everlasting life that can only come from him. The world's brokenness is not the end of the story. In fact, in the grand scheme of eternity, this world's brokenness is just going to be a little footnote in the story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That means your brokenness is not the end of your story. Whatever you have done, whatever uh, suffering you have endured or will endure, in the end, it's just going to be a footnote to what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. But just like in the garden, listen carefully, just like in the garden though, God will not force or coerce us into receiving his love or giving ours. He's already given his all. He's made his choice. He's not going to go back on it. He loves you. He made you. He is committed to you. And he proved it by coming to you in his son, Jesus. By coming to one of us, by by coming to all of us as one of us to heal us. To repair that broken, fallen human nature with the renewed, redeeming, resurrection human nature of Jesus. But we have to receive it. So this is the message of Lent. It's not sad or grumpy or dour or bummed out. Yes, we're fallen. We need to acknowledge that. Yet we've been redeemed by God and Jesus Christ. Jesus is here now. He's promised to be where truth you're gathered in His name, by His Spirit. He's here now by His Spirit, and He is saying to you through His Holy Word that your story can begin again. You can be who you were created to be. You can know and be known without fear and without shame. You can receive love and life and healing and hope and renewed humanity that no one can take from you. Your story can begin again, and you can know that it will also have not only a way better beginning than Genesis chapter three, but it's going to have an absolutely perfect end. And notice I don't say ending; it's not going to be over but it will find its end, its goal, its fulfillment in Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me.